Chapter 2 Two more events remain to be added to the chain before it reaches fairly from the outside of the story to the close. While our new sense of freedom from the long oppression of the past was still strange to us, I was sent for by the friend who had given me my first employment in wood engraving to receive from him a fresh testimony of his regard for my welfare. He had been commissioned by his employers to go to Paris and to examine for them a fresh discovery in the practical application of his art, the merits of which they were anxious to ascertain. His own engagements had not allowed him leisure time to undertake the errand, and he had most kindly suggested that it should be transferred to me. I could have no hesitation in thankfully accepting the offer, for if I acquitted myself of my commission, as I hoped I should, the result would be a permanent engagement on the illustrated newspaper to which I was now only occasionally attached. I received my instructions and packed up for the journey the next day. On leaving Laura once more, under what changed circumstances, in her sister's care, a serious consideration recurred to me, which had more than once crossed my wife's mind, as well as my own, already. I mean the consideration of Marianne's future, Had we any right to let our selfish affection accept the devotion of all that generous life? Was it not our duty, our best expression of gratitude, to forget ourselves and to think only of her? I tried to say this when we were alone for a moment before I went away. She took my hand and silenced me at the first words. After all that we three have suffered together, she said, there can be no parting between us to the last parting of all. My heart and my happiness, Walter, are with Laura and you. Wait a little till there are children's voices at your fireside. I will teach them to speak for me in their language, and the first lesson they say to their father and mother shall be, We can't spare our aunt. My journey to Paris was not undertaken alone. At the eleventh hour, Pesca decided he would accompany me. He had not recovered his customary cheerfulness since the night at the opera, and he determined to try what a week's holiday would do to raise his spirits. I performed the errand entrusted to me and drew out the necessary report on the fourth day from our arrival in Paris. The fifth day I arranged to devote to sightseeing and amusements in Pesca's company. Our hotel had been too full to accommodate us both on the same floor. My room was on the second story and Pesca's was above me on the third On the morning of the fifth day, I went upstairs to see if the professor was ready to go out. Just before I reached the landing, I saw his door opened from the inside. A long, delicate, nervous hand, not my friend's hand, certainly, held it ajar. At the same time, I heard Pesca's voice saying eagerly, in low tones, and in his own language, "'I remember the name, but I don't know the man.' "'You saw at the opera. "'He was so changed that I could not recognize him. "'I will forward the report. "'I can do no more.' "'No more need to be done,' answered the second voice. "'The door opened wide, "'and the light-haired man with the scar on his cheek, "'the man I had seen following Count Fosco's cab "'a week before, came out. "'He bowed as I drew aside to let him pass. "'His face was fearfully pale,' and he held fast by the banisters as he descended the stairs. I pushed open the door and entered Pesca's room. 
he was crouched up in the strangest manner in a corner of the sofa. He seemed to shrink from me when I approached him. "'Am I disturbing you?' I asked. "'I did not know you had a friend with you till I saw him come out.' "'No friend,' said Pesky eagerly. "'I see him today for the first time and the last. "'I am afraid he has brought you bad news.' "'Horrible news, Walter. "'Let us go back to London. "'I don't want to stop here. "'I am sorry I ever came. "'The misfortunes of my youth are very hard upon me,' "'he said, turning his face to the wall. "'Very hard upon me in my later time. "'I try to forget them, and they will not forget me. "'We can't return, I am afraid, before the afternoon,' I replied. "'Would you like to come out with me in the meantime?' "'No, my friend, I will wait here.' "'But let us go back today. "'Pray, let us go back.' "'I left him with the assurance "'that he should leave Paris that afternoon. "'We had arranged the evening before "'to ascend the Cathedral of Notre Dame "'with Victor Hugo's noble romance for our guide. "'There was nothing in the French capital "'that I was more anxious to see, "'and I departed by myself for the church. "'Approaching Notre Dame by the riverside, "'I passed on my way the terrible dead house of Paris, the morgue. A great crowd clamored and heaved round the door. There was evidently something inside which excited the popular curiosity and fed the popular appetite for horror. I should have walked on to the church if the conversation of two men and a woman on the outskirts of the crowd had not caught my ear. They had just come out from seeing the sight in the morgue, and the account they were giving of the dead body to their neighbors described it as the corpse of a man, a man of immense size, with a strange mark on his left arm. The moment those words reached me, I stopped and took my place with the crowd going in. Some dim foreshadowing of the truth had crossed my mind when I heard Pesca's voice through the open door, and when I saw the stranger's face as he passed me on the stairs of the hotel. Now the truth itself was revealed to me, "'revealed in the chance words that had just reached my ears. "'Other vengeance than mine had followed that faded man "'from the theatre to his own door, "'from his own door to his refuge in Paris. "'Other vengeance than mine had called him to the day of reckoning "'and had exacted from him the penalty of his life. "'The moment when I had pointed him out to Pesca at the theatre "'in the hearing of that stranger by our side, "'who was looking for him too,' was the moment that sealed his doom. I remembered the struggle in my own heart when he and I stood face to face, the struggle before I could let him escape me, and shuddered as I recalled it. Slowly, inch by inch, I pressed in with the crowd, moving nearer and nearer to the great glass screen that parts the dead from the living at the morgue. Nearer and nearer till I was close behind the front row of spectators and could look in, there he lay, unowned, unknown, exposed to the flippant curiosity of a French mob. There was the dreadful end of that long life of degraded ability and heartless crime. Hushed in the sublime repose of death, the broad, firm, massive face and head fronted us so grandly that the chattering French women about me lifted their hands in admiration and cried in shrill chorus, "'Ah, what a handsome man!' The wound that had killed him had been struck with a knife or dagger exactly over his heart. 
No other traces of violence appeared about the body except on the left arm, and there, exactly in the place where I had seen the brand on Pesca's arm, were two deep cuts in the shape of the letter T, which entirely obliterated the mark of the Brotherhood. His clothes hung above him, showed that he had been himself conscious of his danger. They were clothes that had disguised him as a French artisan. For a few moments, but not for longer, I forced myself to see these things through the glass screen. I can write of them at no greater length, for I saw no more. The few facts in connection with his death, which I subsequently ascertained, partly from Pesca and partly from other sources, may be stated here before the subject is dismissed from these pages. His body was taken out of the Seine in the disguise which I have described, nothing being found on him which revealed his name, his rank, or his place of abode. The hand that struck him was never traced, and the circumstances under which he was killed were never discovered. I leave others to draw their own conclusions in reference to the secret of the assassination, as I have drawn mine. When I have intimated that the foreigner with the scar was a member of the Brotherhood, admitted in Italy after Pesca's departure from his native country, and when I have further added that the two cuts in the form of a T on the left arm of the dead man signified the Italian word traditore, and showed that justice had been done by the Brotherhood on a traitor, I have contributed all that I know towards elucidating the mystery of Count Fosco's death. The body was identified the day after I had seen it by means of an anonymous letter addressed to his wife. He was buried by Madame Fosco in the cemetery of Père Lachaise, Fresh funeral wreaths continue to this day to be hung on the ornamental bronze railings round the tomb by the Countess's own hand. She lives in the strictest retirement at Versailles. Not long since, she published a biography of her deceased husband. The work throws no light whatever on the name that was really his own or on the secret history of his life. It is almost entirely devoted to the praise of his domestic virtues the assertion of his rare abilities, and the enumeration of the honors conferred on him. The circumstances attending his death are very briefly noticed, and are summed up on the last page in this sentence. His life was one long assertion of the rights of the aristocracy and the sacred principles of order, and he died a martyr to his cause. Chapter 3 the summer and autumn passed after my return from Paris, and brought no changes with them which need be noticed here. We lived so simply and quietly that the income which I was now steadily earning sufficed for all our wants. In the February of the new year, our first child was born, a son. My mother and sister and Mrs. Vesey were our guests at the little christening party, and Mrs. Clements was present to assist my wife on the same occasion— Marianne was our boy's godmother, and Pesca and Mr. Gilmore, the latter acting by proxy, were his godfathers. I may add here that when Mr. Gilmore returned to us a year later, he assisted the design of these pages, at my request, by writing the narrative which appears early in the story under his name, and which, though first in order of precedence, was thus in order of time, the last that I received." 
the only event in our lives which now remains to be recorded occurred when our little Walter was six months old. At that time, I was sent to Ireland to make sketches for certain forthcoming illustrations in the newspaper to which I was attached. I was away for nearly a fortnight, corresponding regularly with my wife and Marianne, except during the last three days of my absence, when my movements were too uncertain to enable me to receive letters. I performed the latter part of my journey back at night, and when I reached home in the morning, to my utter astonishment, there was no one to receive me. Laura and Marianne and the child had left the house on the day before my return. A note from my wife, which was given to me by the servant, only increased my surprise by informing me that they had gone to Limeridge House. Marianne had prohibited any attempt at written explanations. I was entreated to follow them the moment I came back. Complete enlightenment awaited me on my arrival in Cumberland, and I was forbidden to feel the slightest anxiety in the meantime. There the note ended. It was still early enough to catch the morning train. I reached Limeridge House the same afternoon. My wife and Marianne were both upstairs. They had established themselves, by way of completing my amazement, in the little room which had been once assigned to me for a studio when I was employed on Mr. Fairley's drawings. On the very chair which I used to occupy when I was at work, Marianne was sitting now, with the child industriously sucking his coral upon her lap, while Laura was standing by the well-remembered drawing-table, which I had so often used, with the little album that I had filled for her in pastimes, open under her hand. "'What in the name of heaven has brought you here?' I asked. "'Does Mr. Fairley know?' Marianne suspended the question on my lips by telling me that Mr. Fairley was dead. He had been struck by paralysis and had never rallied after the shock.' Mr. Kyrill had informed them of his death and had advised them to proceed immediately to Limeridge House. Some dim perception of a great change dawned on my mind. Laura spoke before I had quite realized it. She stole close to me to enjoy the surprise which was still expressed in my face. "'My darling Walter,' she said, "'must we really account for our boldness in coming here? "'I am afraid, love,' I can only explain it by breaking through our rule and referring to the past. There is not the least necessity for doing anything of the kind, said Marianne. We can be just as explicit and much more interesting by referring to the future. She rose and held up the child kicking and crowing in her arms. Do you know who this is, Walter? she asked, with bright tears of happiness gathering in her eyes. "'Even my bewilderment has its limits,' I replied. "'I think I can still answer for knowing my own child.' "'Child!' she exclaimed, with all their easy gaiety of old times. "'Do you talk in that familiar manner of one of the landed gentry of England? "'Are you aware, when I present this illustrious baby to your notice, "'in whose presence you stand? "'Evidently not. "'Let me make two eminent personages known to one another.' Mr. Walter Hartwright, the heir of Limeridge. So she spoke. In writing those last words, I have written all. The pen falters in my hand. The long, happy labor of many months is over. 
Marianne was the good angel of our lives. Let Marianne end our story. The End Phoebe Reads a Mystery is produced by Kara Ehlenfeldt and Susanna Robertson. We'll be back in a few days with a new book. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.